You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking about how to sell your business, possibly with an investment bank. This is a topic that I have a little bit of familiarity with, and I think a lot of people want to know more about. We have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to the show. So I'm really glad, Matt, that we're going to be discussing this. Joining me today is Matt Tortora, who's Managing Director at BMI Mergers. Matt, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here, and it's good to reconnect with you. Yeah, absolutely. And before we dive in, there's so much to cover with this topic, you know, uh, and I love transactions. I mean, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, just like the phrase liquidity event, you know, or investment bank, it kind of like gets your heart pumping, yeah. you know, Yeah. but, but why don't you give us a brief introduction to BMI mergers to kind of yeah, start it off? Sure. So BMI mergers, um, is a lower middle market focused investment bank. Um, we've been in business for 16 years now. Um, we've been recognized twice as a top 25 lower middle market firm in North America for the work we've done. And most recently received, um, the recognition of, a top 50 software deal maker um, this year in 2023 for the work we did in 2022. Um, you know, we're focused on about four or five uh, core industry verticals, uh, one of those being software and technology services, which is the practice I run. You know, and we're working with CEOs and founders um, really primarily in two capacities. Number one, helping them find an acquirer uh, and exit their company, or secondly, take on growth equity capital, um, continue to stay on board um, and scale the organization. We'll also work with larger firms uh, supporting their acquisition efforts as well. Okay. So you, so you guys work on both the buy side and the sell side, essentially? Correct. Yeah. I mean, more of our work is, is on the sell side, but yes, we do, we do both work on the buy and sell side. And so for, you know, some of our listeners or viewers who might not be familiar with a, a like a typical exit or transaction, who actually compensates the investment bank? Is it the buyer or the seller? You know, I'm thinking of like a real estate transaction. Sure. Like, well, the seller, it's, it comes out of the seller's cut, right? So who actually compensates an iBank? Yeah, so the short answer is who we have our fiduciary responsibility with, right? So if we've been hired by the seller to run a process and, and take them to market and market them to our network of buyers and investors, um, the seller is going to compensate us. And the lion's share of that compensation is predicated on a successful outcome and a sale um, commensurate with the transaction size. Um, conversely, if we're running a buy side engagement and supporting, you know, either add-on uh, initiatives or acquisition initiatives for either a private equity group or a large strategic, that buy side, that firm that we're supporting from a buy side perspective is going to compensate us with again, and that's predicated on a successful outcome. That's interesting that you mentioned fiduciary duty. So I wasn't aware that investment banks operated you know, as a, as a fiduciary, is that, yeah, I mean, more, difficult? more or less and I, you know, I would not to go too far down a path of technicalities, but, you know, we talk about a fiduciary responsibility. We have a responsibility to, you know, our clients to, um, position them as effectively as possible. You know, I guess for lack of a better term, fight for them and, and put the best deal structure in place. Understood. Yeah. I mean, it as a, as a client, you know, in any context, it's always reassuring, you know, to to know that whoever you hire is acting in your best interest. So you you kind of you mentioned your sector, your area of focus, mm -hmm. lower middle market. 
Could you kind of walk us through with investment banks and with you know businesses being bought and sold? Well, what's lower middle market? But actually, I'd ask you know what are what's lower market, what's middle market, and what's, what's yeah. And I think maybe the high market this, is just IPO. So maybe that's yeah, what high market. Is. I think a, yeah, and a better way to look at this um, is in tiers, right? So yeah. you have your small businesses, your main street businesses, if you will, that are typically represented by business brokers. You know, and those are you know companies that are transacting for you know, a million dollars, million and a half, your, your, your typical mom and pop shops, if you will. Um, once you start to get to the upper end of that SMB space, you know, and you look at valuations of you know, five, $10 million plus, you're now creeping into the lower middle market. And, you know, depending on who you ask, that definition um, of lower middle market varies. But, you know, we shift to middle market transactions when we're talking about things well north of 500 million, typically a billion on up. Um, and then, of course, lastly, you have enterprise transactions, which are you know, typically represented by bulge bracket banks. So your Goldman's of the world, your, your Bank of America's, et cetera. Got it. OK, so you, I, I think you answered this, but, you know, what what would be the, the low end, you know, the plausible kind of low end or typical low range for a transaction where an iBank would even, you know, not, not even just yours, but just any investment bank? would consider being involved in a transaction like what you know is it like a five million dollar deal size where investment it's even you know kind of worth the the time and the fixed cost and all that to be to be involved in a transaction or i say so here's what i would say you know it's a once in a lifetime typically a once in a lifetime event for an owner or founder or ceo um, who's a majority shareholder so the easy answer is that no matter what the size, anything, you know, five, six, 700 K plus, um, it's always wise to have professional representation. Um, and the larger the transaction size or expected transaction size, the more important that becomes, because now we're talking about a greater degree of risk. Um, so, you know, if I look at us and, you know, where we play, it's, you know, transactions typically that are north of three, $4 million. And in my world and my team, it's, you know, north of 10. Um, but that's, you know, so the larger the transaction, the more it is to, to get professional representation. But, you know, at the bare minimum, you know, hiring, retaining counsel is, is in having some degree of professional representation is always a good decision, no matter what the size. And yeah, you met, you know, you mentioned retaining counsel. So in, in full disclosure, you know, mm -hmm. I guess, depending on how I kind of, what I count as a liquidity event or an exit, sure. I've done this three or four times and, you know, we always would have an attorney, mm -hmm. you know, so, and I I'll, <laughs> actually looking back, it's, it's funny looking back. I kind of, in these transactions personally, always got a reputation from the opposing counsel is like kind of a crazy guy, you know, almost like hard to do. Like I'm the guy who you give me a 50 page purchase agreement or APA. Like I'm going to yep. read it. I'm going to mark and you're it. You're going to be picking apart. You're going to be picking apart clauses. Well, because from no, my that's good. I think that's good. I mean, obviously an attorney's there for that too, but that's great. Well, it's just, it, to <clears> me, it was, it was kind of nerve wracking when you get into like the representations and warranties. Yep. And you start actually reading through, wow, all these things can go wrong. And you're like, you know, the reason this is in this APA or this purchase agreement 
is because there's so many transactions that have happened previously that this attorney has been involved in or that you know people in the industry have been involved in and they've seen all these things that can go wrong yep. so now they put them in the purchase agreement but, but anyway looking back the interesting thing is it would be like a 14 21 28 day legal negotiation period mm-hmm. it would be very very stressful and then the transaction would close and then looking back, I'm like, oh, nothing ever came of it. Well, <laughs> maybe that was just because we were so transparent and honest with our paperwork and all that. But but I don't know, looking back, whether I needed to sweat it or not. In your experience, are the, you know, are your clients, are they stressed out during this process? Cause to me, it was it was always very stressful. Even if it was like kind of a good stress, it was very stressful. I don't think I've ever gone through an MA process that where there hasn't been a, a good degree of stress from both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, typically there's more stress on the part of the seller because it may be their first and only time doing that. And it yeah. could be a life-changing event for them financially. So that by its nature causes obviously a lot of stress. Yes. Yep. And, and do you, Matt, do you become then uh, you know, kind of a therapist or <laughs> do you have to wear different hats to kind of, you know, calm, calm people down sometimes. Sometimes I think, you know, as investment bankers, one of our jobs is to manage expectations, right? And that's managing expectations around what's market, what's not. Are the sellers ask or our clients asks, asks realistic or unrealistic and, and sometimes bringing them back down to reality um, or sometimes saying, no, you should not accept this term or this clause or, you know, this structure. Here's why. And, and showing them what's market and what's feasible. Um, so, yes, it's a little bit of therapist um, and sometimes some tough love. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about expectations, this this question is is. I mean, in a way, it's impossible to answer because every every deal is different, every company is different. But broadly speaking, you know, in the in the markets that you play in, yeah, what is like a range of reasonable multiples? Like, what's what would be like a median multiple of EBITDA? Right? Like, we can all we can all go to uh, look at the S and P and and like look at the dividend yield or or look at the PE ratio, so we kind of know what the average or typical multiple is in the mm-hmm. public markets. Yep. So, and, and I'm guessing it can be, it's very different from software versus other, or maybe it's not That's even right. measured in, in yep. EBITDA with software. Yep. So I'm going to answer that question in two parts, right? So number one, there is no mean or median across all sectors, right? It varies widely from sector to sector. And in the world I play in, when you have IT consulting firms and you have software, Oftentimes, especially in the lower middle market, IT consulting firms are valued off of an EBITDA multiple um, to a degree, right? Once you get to a certain size and you're $25, 30000000 million consulting shop growing really quickly, you're going to be valued off of a top line number. Whereas software is almost always in our world valued off of ARR um, at top line number. So in my answer- And, and why, why, I guess, why is that conception? I mean, it, I, I guess I would, if I'm theorizing, let me theorize for a minute, like I'm a buyer mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, software ultimately maybe has higher value in terms of it's very, very sticky or I might pay a higher multiple for software. Like there's yep. more IP there versus- consulting more labor intensive business more you know human capital seems a little bit i i guess riskier if you have you know a couple big contracts or something you lose those contracts you know there goes the business so is the multiple generally higher with software versus it services 
if we're if we're talking comparing apples to apples from a top line perspective, yes, without question, right? So, in my question for value, you know, to answer your question on valuation ranges, you know, I'm pulling on data that was from a year ago, right? Before we, you know, started facing the economic headwinds we're facing now. A year ago, and it depends on, you know, things like the size of the company in terms of the, the their ARR, the growth rate, the sector they're in. Um, there are certain sectors of software that are more in demand than others, um, you know, retention metrics, et cetera. All those variables affect the valuation multiple. But we saw companies trading anywhere from 4X up to 12, and we would even see some outliers north of 12X. Um that softened in the past, you know, six to nine months. Um, we've seen valuations soften by about 20, 25%. Um, conversely, if you look at IT consulting, IT services firms, and if we're looking at an EBITDA-based multiple, um, there's less variability there. Um, it's a much more straightforward process of getting a sense of a realistic range of valuation for a company. And, you know, again, about a year ago, we were seeing most companies trading in the six to 10 times EBITDA range. Again, some would be north of that and some would be south. Those companies, those quote unquote rocket ships that I talked about before that are $25, $30 million in scaling, you know, we saw one and a half to three times top line revenue as a, as a realistic multiple. Okay. And, and in these deals, you know, where an investment bank is involved, mm-hmm. a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times leverage is being used. And so much of what we cover on this show is real estate, you yep. know, and, and I, I think one of the, I guess, nicer things about operating real estate is the debt you know, the debt picture is more to, to me, it's, it's like more structured, it's more templated, it's more, you know, there are just certain types of like standard products. Whereas once you go into the private markets outside of real estate, you know, every business is different, you know, there's oftentimes there's not really a lot of uh, collateral or hard assets, you know, that the bank, you know, that a bank can really, so is, you know, from the, from the buyer side, you know, do you all, are you all involved with helping secure debt to finance deals or, or can you talk a little bit about how that typically works like in an acquisition and software or in, you know, consulting? Yeah. So we don't get involved in the debt component of it. So we're not working with buyers, helping them secure debt. We're strictly executing the transaction and, you know, obviously managing that process, but we, we are hands off in terms of the debt. Um, so we don't have full transparency or visibility, I should say, into how that process is, is working. I mean, we know, like, for example, if we're working with a private equity group on a transaction, um, you know, we're going to validate that they're going to be able to underwrite the deal. I mean, of course, nine times out of 10, they are right. Cause they'll have, you know, an ample amount of equity on hand in their fund. Um, and we will sometimes want to know who, who are your debt backers. And there's typically a ticker tape of, of, of banks they'll work with to finance a portion of the deal. And that's the same for strategics, right? It's going to be usually a combination of, of debt and, and equity or cash on hand to, to finance a transaction. And, you know, as a, an investment bank, we want to make sure that they have the financial wherewithal to, uh, execute the transaction at the valuation we're expecting. So, you know, we'll see, you know, who those providers are, not all the time, but oftentimes. And, you know, usually they're going to a list of banks and, and looking at where they can get the best, the best rate and the best structure on a deal, but we're not involved in actually executing the structure. 
Got it. Yeah. So they're, they're shopping around getting the best rate. And, and frankly, maybe in today's market, even just, you know, who, who will lend to them at all, right? At, at, at any rate, depending on the type of transaction, obviously yeah. with software to me, that that's something where, um, you know, it's not tangible. There's no assets, like there's no, you know, office building or multifamily, you know, like in real estate, but you know, uh, depending on the type of software and the price points, that can be very, very sticky and predictable revenue streams, right? So you yep. could almost view that as pretty solid collateral from-, from It is. I mean, because you're buying, you're really buying three things, right? You're buying IP, you're buying the contracts, and especially in this market with a scarcity of development talent, you're buying talent too, right? Which is, which is valuable in and of itself. And I would say this, and yes, in theory- you know, uh, an IT consulting firm could pose more risk because if if every customer just pulls their contract um, and all the employees leave, you have nothing at the end of the day, right? But there is a degree of stickiness. And especially when we get into looking at firms like managed service providers, application managed service providers, you're looking at a stream of recurring revenue that's contractually booked. So no, it's not actual, you know, software IP, but there is uh, a good degree of stickiness with certain consulting firms, IT services firms. Got it. Understood. Okay. You know, one more question about the clients that you're working with, you know, the, the people, the human beings, do you have any insight, you know, why, why they decide to come to you, why they decide to sell their business? Like, is it, is it typically more like a good thing? Like I, you know, I can think of businesses that I've built that I kind of knew in my head, if we can scale revenue to X level, yep. once you hit X level, the business becomes like sellable because yep. it like starts to hit us. So like I, I kind of had in my mind from the beginning, like I want to hit this goal. Once we hit this goal, we'll take the business to market. Yep. But, but other times, you know, founders can get burnt out or, or, or right. maybe even they weren't thinking about selling their business and someone came to them and, and then maybe that deal didn't happen, but they kind of realized like, oh, maybe I should, you know, they planted the seed in their head or something. So what, what are those re typical reasons that a client comes to you and they're, they say, Matt, I'm ready to sell my business. Yeah. Well, it's the first one that you outlined and I call it, I like to call it founder fatigue. Right. Mm -hmm. And I see it very frequently in software. It's because it, you, you scaling a software company is hard. And especially if you're doing it in a, a semi-bootstrap mode, it's very challenging. Um, and I, I know firsthand. Um, and I'll often see founders get to a place where they're in four ARR, five ARR, and they really hit a growth plateau and they've been at it for X number of years and they're ready, they wanna scale and, and they're ready to kind of pour gas on that fire and you know accelerate the growth of the platform and, and move on. Um, at that point, and they're fatigued. I mean, because as I said, scaling a software company is hard. You know, the other common theme we'll see is people are ready to sunset the company, or I should say, sell the company because they're ready to retire. Um, or there are sometimes, and far less frequently, like health issues, for example. So it's really one of those scenarios. It's you know, founder fatigue, and there's a growth plateau, and they're ready to exit, or it's it's retirements on the horizon. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, you know, alluding back to the stress, uh, the stress thing that we were talking about, you know, there obviously is a lot of stress going into these deals, which is interesting because, you know, they, they hopefully culminate in a liquidity event, right? Which, yep. which should be a very good thing. It's one of those things, you know, be careful what you wish for. I guess this is something I can share firsthand, you know, when you work for years to build up and scale a business and sell it, and it's, it, it is a good thing. 
on a lot of levels, then you sell it and the wire hits, you're kind of sitting there going, well, now what? Yep. You know, depending on how you structure the deal, whether, you know, there might be an earnout, you might not even be employed by the inquirer at all, or, or it might be whatever, three, six months, whatever, you know, so it is very, very stressful. And, and I think you're, to your point, a big part of your job is setting expectations. What's the fun part? You know, we've talked about the stress, you know, what's, what's kind of that, you know, moment of joy for you where, you know, you see like, okay, this either it's a, it's going to complete or, or it has completed. And, you know, do you, do you ever get to share in those moments with, with the seller? Where uh, I mean, obviously, and this is a very obvious, straightforward answer. The fun moment is, is, is seeing the transaction consummate and being on the closing call. Um, and, you know, it's kind of an anticlimactic process. You've gone, you've gone to war more or less for the last 60 days and due diligence yeah. Um, and then you jump on a 20 minute call and the transaction's done, but more fun than that is hanging up on the zoom call or leaving the meeting and being able to speak one-on-one with the founder or the partners and tell them congratulations. Cause they've made a huge, I mean, they've just changed their life oftentimes. So that's, yeah. that's a rewarding part. And, you know, I think the other thing that for me is enjoyable is you're working very closely with someone um, on a huge transaction that's going to change their life for six to nine months and you form a bond and you five form friendships from it and clients that I still stay in touch with to this day. And that to me is, is very rewarding. Totally. Well, you mentioned, you know, the, the closing call could be anticlimactic. Matt, I have an idea, you know, it's just an idea. You could get a big gong, you know, and, and you'd have to go on mute. You, you'd have to mute yourself. But, you know, when the final signature, whatever, gets signed and the wire sent, you can, you know, hit the gong. Uh, hey, just an idea. Just an well, idea. I just I go I go and make a pot of coffee because coffee's for closers. So, yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love it. OK, so let's talk about options. Uh, you know, I'm a let's say I'm an entrepreneur. It, I'm not going to say I have a software business. That's just not plausible. But let's say I have some other kind of business, consulting sure. business, whatever. I want to bring it to market. Uh, what are my options? You know, who do I sell the business to? Is it a full sale? Is it a partial sale? Like, what are kind of the main options on the menu for me as a seller? Yep. So, well, and I'm going to speak because there are, you know, there's a litany of options, right? You could, you know, if you're a seller in a smaller business, you could sell to, you know, you could do an ESOP, you could sell to one of your partners, but in our world, there's really two primary options. It's sell to a financial acquirer, like a private equity firm or a family office, um, or sell to a strategic, i.e. a larger company in your space. And which is more common there? Is the strategic more common or does it kind of depend on the size of the company? Now, 50-50. It's a 50-50, okay. you know, in terms of, you know, what we see and the offers we get. Um, you know, in software, private equity is hyperactive. Um, so we've done several deals and in, in selling into private equity firms. Um, well, that's, a, that's interesting to me because I think, you know, you mentioned some of these software companies will kind of hit that wall. We'll hit whatever three or four yep. million or, or whatever it is and the growth will slow. So it's interesting to me selling to private equity. I would almost think that'd be the point where you'd want the strategic who would say, hey, we we own this other software company. We know how to unlock growth at this critical juncture. Or we know how to cross sell it to our other clients. There's a, that, that's sort of interesting. You know, is does does private equity have that kind of plan in place or expertise to kind of get the revenue growth unstuck w- when that kind they, of transaction takes place? They do. Um 
And I think that private equity is one of the most overlooked options um, for founders who have a company that's large enough and has the financial KPIs that would interest a private equity group. And it's a good option if a founder wants to, to your earlier point about you sell and sometimes it's now what? It's a good, not even good, it's a great option for a founder who wants to take some chips off the table, maybe sell 70, 80% of the business and roll over a portion of their equity into quote unquote NUCO uh, and continue to play a critical role in scaling the business and get a second bite of the apple and realize a second exit in four to five years time. You know, in our world, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes we'll see higher valuations from strategics than private equity. Mm-hmm. But what I like to tell, you know, clients and potential clients is, even though the valuation you may get up front working with a private equity firm might be a little bit lighter, net net, you could end up in a better financial situation over three to five years once you realize that second bite of the apple. So it's a very founder favorable scenario if you work with the right partner and the right group. Um, and quite frankly, it all comes down to working with the right group, right? Because it can be a very founder friendly scenario if you work with the right strategic acquirer. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I view private, and this is my, my take on it. I view private equity and that route as presenting more upside than, um, a strategic. Now that's not to say there aren't scenarios where a strategic could give you a ton of equity and there's a, a lot of upside, but by and large, from what I perceive and in transactions we've done, um, that private equity route is a, is a very good route for founders. And how often do the founders, you know, want to stay involved versus, I sold my business. I mean, they're walking away, you know, day after, or maybe, you know, uh, three to six months afterwards, you know, depending on handcuffs, burnout, whatever. How often are they, they wanting to walk away versus wanting to stay involved? You know, I think it's a function of age, right? Because I think, you know, if I'm, I'm working with someone who is at, you know, quote unquote retirement age, I think retirement age, you know, is different for everybody. It's, there's less of a desire where we work with, you know, I've worked with younger CEOs who are in their, you know, mid to early forties who have been scaling a company for eight, nine years, and they've got a lot of runway left and, and want to stay on and, and want to grow. Um, so I think it's more a function of age and how much runway they have left in their career that dictates whether or not they want to stay on uh, or there's a desire to leave uh, once they can leave, right? Because on almost every transaction, there's a requirement to ensure a smooth, trans- smooth transition. That's a very fair ask to stay on for, you know, at least 18 to 24 months. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm thinking back to some of my transactions and, you know, every seller is different, right? They're all, they're all going to have different things that move their needle, you know, and, and that leads to my next question, which is what are the pitfalls to avoid? You know, cause, cause we were talking before we were recording and, we kind of talked about how some sellers they kind of zero in just on price, like on a number. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and you mentioned that it's not that's that's really the wrong mindset. To, and I agree for for what it's worth. But t- tell us about you know the, is that the major pitfall? Are there other things that sellers really need to to be watching out for? I think that's the biggest misconception, right? And and now almost every time I'm talking to someone that has come to us or we've come to them and they're interested in selling their company, it's, you know, what are the goals? Well, the number one goal is almost always, you know, get the best valuation possible. And is that their real goal or is that what they think is their real goal? They, you know, I mean, again, that would be case by case, but, but here's what I always like to say. And, you know, I'll get on my soapbox for a minute. You know, the M&A process 
is really about an exercise in risk mitigation. It's mitigating risk for the seller, making sure they get a fair deal structure in place that protects them post-acquisition um, and maximizes their guaranteed cash at close. And it's also an exercise in risk mitigation for the buyer because, it, you know, to your point earlier, right, there's like, for example, in a services business, there's a lot of risk there. And, you know, there's risk around retaining customers, retaining the revenue rate, making sure the company grows, making sure there's a smooth transition. So this process really comes down to effectively mitigating risk for both parties. So, you know, the, one of the big misconceptions and the mistakes that sellers make is, again, thinking that they need to maximize value when there are a lot of things like deal structure, um, earnout, um, you know, cultural fit, integration plans, all that stuff that will have a critical impact mm-hmm. on the success of the transaction and, and the amount of money they realize that go well beyond valuation. So if we look at pitfalls, right? It's things like earnouts, um, because we see earnouts in a lot of deals. Um, and in this environment, we're seeing more earnouts and earnouts that are constituting a larger percentage of the transaction. So what what would be typical there? Like in today's environment, like 50% cash up front, 50% earnout, or like what would be a typical? Seen, yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen offers um, that are that aggressive. Yes. And it's usually a combination of cash, uh, equity, or a note. And then some form of an earnout, mm-hmm. um, but earnout will be one huge risk, right? You know, is the earnout fair market value in terms of the percentage of the transaction? Is the earnout realistic and attainable? Um, is the post integration plan and the terms and conditions around the earnout does it put the uh, seller in a position to actually achieve that earnout? Uh, yeah, that, the Matt, that's always to to speak personally. That's why I've always been biased against earnouts because from my perspective i'm like wait i'm selling my business so i'm giving up control yep i no longer have control over this machine or this apparatus yep and yet i'm being compensated on the results of this apparatus that i no longer have control over with so yep. i always i would always either try and uh steer steer the deal away from earnout or i would just say okay you know one third of the deal is earnout or whatever I would discount that internally like 50% or just like with some crazy discount, right? Like it's almost like mentally I'd be like, that's gravy. If I get any earn out, great, but I'm not going to count on it, you know? So here's the other thing. And I agree. And here's the other thing that needs to be taken into consideration. The larger the acquiring organization, if you're selling to a strategic, now you're walking into a scenario where there is, you know, honestly, more, more bureaucracy, more red tape uh, and the ability to hit that earn out when you're swallowed by the machine um, can become even more challenging. So that's a, do you, do you think that sellers, excuse me, excuse me, buyers, are they, when they're structuring earnouts, are they even like structuring them in good faith? Like, like honest question, like, are they structuring them or is it, I more think it depends. Them? Honestly, I think it depends on the buyer, right? Because we've seen earnouts that, um, seem aggressive, um, and borderline unfair. Whereas we've seen an, an unwillingness to, to work on structuring a fair market earnout, And we obviously advise our clients to avoid that. Whereas we've seen others. And again, this is what goes back to risk mitigation. It's not an unfair ask on the part of a buyer, especially, you know, given the nature of a certain company to ask for some kind of earnout to make sure that that revenue maintains and grows a bit. Um, but it's, you know, how willing is the buyer to structure a fair and attainable earnout, and how willing are they to work with us on that? So yes, the the short answer is yes. I've seen, I've seen some. Heads so then it was so sorry. So 
back to the pitfall, you're talking about don't, you know, the the whole deal size or whatever to maximize value then is your typical, is that typical ask like maximize the sticker size of the deal that includes the earnout, or is it to like maximize the non-earnout value? Yeah, it's about maximizing the non-earnout and, and the components yeah. that are not guaranteed like equity, for example, right? Um, or earnout. Make sure that the structure of that earnout is fair and attainable, like I said earlier, or make sure like, okay, you're acquiring equity. How stable is the situation you're walking into? What's the liquidity of that equity? What's the exit horizon? So yes, it's, it's the structure and it's, it's really getting to a place where you can guarantee for the seller that they're going to receive as much remuneration as humanly possible. And there is as little as possible in terms of unknowns and risk in terms of like, you know, not a guarantee that you're going to receive X number of, uh, of dollars. I mean, I've heard about, you know, deals, people get all excited. Well, we, we saw a 10 X offer from this strategic. Okay. Well, what was the deal structure like? Deal- it was 90% stock or right. Whatever. Yeah. I know. And I've seen that like equity heavy, right. Yeah. Which is a big risk or, you know, it was, 25% cash and the rest was an earn own equity. Well, that's not, that's a high degree of risk. Right. right? So um, those are the suddenly things- that the suddenly that 10 X sounds like two and a half X to me, you know? Yeah, precisely. That's exactly right. So, so, the big, so was- yeah, deal structures. Yeah. That's a big, big area of risk and, and an oft overlooked. Yeah. And you almost have to, um, you have to take each component of the offer or evaluate, you know, and, and, value it differently you know the stock the earnout, the note the cash it's all you got to imply some sort of discount rate to it and there's not going to they're not necessarily going to be a playbook right because if there's a small strategic acquirer there's no real valuation on their stock i mean maybe they had a recent funding round or something but even that you know That's i don't right. know how much stock you put into that so it's i i guess all i'm saying is it it's hard and and to your point, uh, you know, working to to maximize or optimize the cash, you know, the guaranteed aspects of that is a way to mitigate risk for yep. the seller. That's right, and it's it's oftentimes the most heavily negotiated component of a transaction. Yeah, interesting. And well, so I'm I'm curious about that. I mean, my experience is a lot of buyers will kind of say like, Hey, basically here's how much cash we have to work with either that our yeah, lender gave us right. or. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. And so like, I mean, look at it this way, right? If you, if you own a company and you think you're going to transact for $10 million, right. And there's a 25, $30 million company in, in your niche and your sector uh, that wants to acquire you, they're typically not going to have the financial wherewithal in the cash, even with some debt, right. Cause they're not going to want to over leverage themselves to make a major portion of that $10 million enterprise valuation cash, Mm -hmm. right? So it depends on the size of the acquirer too. Totally. So what are the common misperceptions with, uh, you know, misconceptions with, you know, sellers or potential sellers who come to you? What's like a typical uh, myth that you have to bust or, you know, that you kind of have to manage your expectations on? I mean, the biggest one again, and, and not to sound like a broken record, is is the the total the total enterprise value being the most important the most important component, um, you know. And I think, and one of the other, and it, managing expectations around valuation, um, 
you know, there's a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times a big disconnect between what a seller thinks their business is worth and what valuation they should receive versus what the market will most likely bear. Because for them, it's personal, right? They're like, this is my baby. I'm selling my baby. Don't you understand? My baby is worth a hundred million dollars. And you're like, well, to you, it's your baby, but to the market, it's kind of an objective thing, right? Yes. And the other thing I think that's a huge misconception, and this is more ubiquitous in the software world is, well, we've just released this new version of the product and it's awesome. And we have this feature and this vision, we're heading the, taking the company in this direction. This is our growth plan. Um, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, yeah. like, yes, I mean, of course people do care, right? Yeah. But especially if you're talking about an acquisition by a strategic acquirer, they usually have a plan in place and a vision for their platform and you're going to have to plug into that. So nobody cares. And, yeah. you know, things like, we, you know, we excel because, you know, our support and, and you know, the consulting work we do is second to none. It, it, at the end of the day, 90% of this, and founders don't want to hear it, and I get it, it's a financial exercise. So what, what can a, a seller, what can an entrepreneur expect in terms of timeline? Let's say that they, they haven't necessarily, they don't have an offer on the table. They haven't even necessarily gotten any interest, anything serious. But I come to you, Matt, and I'm like, the Alternative Investment Podcast, my show, we've reached <clears throat> 6 million in recurring revenue per year. We're ready to go to market, Matt. Yeah. I, think this, I think this podcast is worth you know, $50 million. Let's take it to market. What's my, and let's say I have the financials to support it, you know, yep. so Blackstone, if you're listening, you know, always interested in, but seriously, um, what, what would be the timeline if this is really day one yep. of, of, you know, my potential exit path? Six to 12 months, typically. Um, wow. you know, the average obviously being about nine months. Um, we've seen engagements go longer, take longer than that as much as like 18 to 24 months. And we've sold companies in as little as four to five months. You know, there's typically a 12, Matt, 12 to 24. That just sounds terrible, man. It'd be, it's like, that sounds to me like I'm moving, I'm doing a cross state move and it takes 12 to 24 months. That just, it gives me like, uh, I get stress, you know, feelings just thinking about it 12 to 24 month process of selling. Yeah. And that's, and bear in mind, that's an outlier, right? So when we talk about managing expectations, you know, I typically feel comfortable saying expect this process to take about nine months because there's, you know, usually, you know, about four to five weeks to stand everything up, get ready to go to market. Um, and is that just getting audited financials and kind of poking around and making a deck or what is, what is that? Get, you know, building out the book on the company, um, you know, kind of, and we pretty much have a good feeling going in as to who the logical acquirers are going to be, but it's, okay. you know, kind of getting that and delineating that list, you know, out through our database of who we're going to be going after, what doors we're going to be knocking on, some of which we have, you know, nice relationships that are already in place. Others, we know them, but, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, a knock on the door, if you will. So it's getting that, it's getting that data ready. And then obviously going out, um, you know, knocking on those doors, generating interest, uh, receiving offers, vetting those offers, negotiating those initial offers. And then a due diligence process can be anywhere from, you know, 45 to 90 days. And sometimes, you know, the biggest Delta I see in terms of what can make this longer or shorter is level of interest initially, right? Because if we don't get a high level of interest initially, we're going to have to go back, remarket it, you know, kind of go down some paths we didn't think we had to go down. Whereas if there's strong interest, the process moves faster. To my earlier point, you know, we've sold businesses in as little as, you know, four or five months. 
Um, but nine months is typically where I feel comfortable saying, you know, you should expect that. And my mindset is, um, you know, after nine, 10 months, we, I mean, after six months, we kind of know what direction this is heading in. Are we going to meet or exceed the seller's expectations and goals? Um, or do we think it makes sense to maybe regroup, wait a year, wait two years until certain financial metrics are improve, improve, or maybe a macroeconomic environment improves and then go back out to market. So, you know, I got, I take a mentality of, you know, let's get fast learnings on this. Um, so we're not just dragging our feet. Okay. And, and I know we're running short on time, but I had one more very specific question. How often does it happen in these transactions where you get to due diligence, you know, you have like a, a real offer deal's going to happen. You're doing the due diligence and you realize that the original operating agreement was never signed by the founder or the other, you know, the original investors. Cause I feel like I've that's never seen that. Oh, I, that's happened. To, I think that's happened to me every single uh, transaction I've ever done. I've realized. Really? Oh, yes. But you know, my, my partners, I were always, you know, real close knit friends, but yeah. Okay. So that, that that's just no, the me I, thing. I, yeah, I know. I'll tell you this. So there are a million, and you mentioned this at the beginning of the call. That is a, that is a you thing. Um, you mentioned this at the beginning of the call, right? There's a million things that can derail a transaction, either post LOI, even in the latter stages of due diligence. Um, I've even received uh, alarming phone calls the night before a deal was supposed to close um, and had to work through the night on some things to, to ensure that we got a deal done and transaction. I presume that happened every deal, Matt. You're telling me that doesn't happen every deal. I thought that happened every deal. Well, when I'm when I'm less than 12 hours from a transaction closing and we have a major issue, um, yeah. it's a little late in the game. But yeah, but there's a million and one things, and and you know, yes, it's you know, the deal's not completed until the money's wired and, and the purchase agreement signed. That's right. That's right. Well, and you know that better than anyone. Yeah, no, that's that's very true, and and it is very stressful. But at the same time, you know, you're you're helping mitigate risk in these transactions, and you know, when transactions go well, and a lot of them do, you know, it is win-win because you know you put the seller, they get to move on to their next phase of life, you know, what what they want to do next, if they want to retire, and for the buyer, you know, it can be a creative, it can be a source of growth. Um, so Mac, you know, can't thank you enough for kind of walking us through this, this process today, sharing your insights. And that being said, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and family offices and, you know, folks in private equity in our audience and listenership. So where can they go to learn more about BMI mergers and all the services that you provide? Yep. Uh, on our website, bmimergers.com. Um, and everyone's contact information is obviously on there. And there's of course, different areas of sector coverage that, that our advisors have. Um, so, uh, yeah, our website, bmimergers.com. And I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well as to Matt's LinkedIn page. So Matt, you might get a couple connection requests. I, uh, I, I'm i more than welcoming of it. So yeah. And thank you for having me. It was fun. It was fun to be on and uh, you guys have a great podcast. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Enjoy yeah, the rest of your day. You too. Take care, Andy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.